Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this and all the other episodes. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list, and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them I'd have quit long ago. And I'd especially like to thank new patron Will from Dutchess County, New York. I do offer all of my patrons the opportunity for a shout-out on the show. For some reason, most don't choose to take me up on it, but Will, welcome to the club. Join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. Now, without further ado, on with the interview. I'm here today with Andrew Newton, who is a historical fencer and mounted archer and runs the Annapolis Valley Historical Fencing Club. So, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you. I should also actually point out that Andrew is one of the uh, people who actually pitched me to come on the show. And so let this be like a, a, a gentle reminder to those of you out there who think that maybe you have something interesting to say. You are welcome to pitch. I may say no, but you are welcome to pitch. Okay. So, um, my first question, as usual, uh, whereabouts in the world are you? I'm in the Annapolis Valley, which is in Nova Scotia, Canada, on, on the East Coast. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, well, I, I saw Annapolis, and I just assumed that was like Virginia. Maryland, but no. Maryland. Okay, no, yeah, that bit of the world. Annapolis Valley is <laughs> okay. uh, about two hours outside of Halifax, if you ever look at a map. Okay. Um, so, quite a rural area. Uh, which makes a fencing club interesting. Okay. Um, so how did you how how do you find running a fencing club in the middle of nowhere? Actually, really well, uh, really good. Uh, people are looking for something to do, especially since uh, COVID kind of closed a lot of a lot of things. Yeah. Um, a lot of clubs haven't kind of reestablished themselves in other mm-hmm. events, so we kind of came at the right time to start filling a void. I started teaching um, January 2021. Oh wow! Quite recently. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you actually started your club just after lockdown? Yeah. I'd been toying with it and had an earlier attempt. Okay. But um, no, that's when I got serious about it. So, so I'm assuming that isn't when you began historical martial arts? No. no <laughs> it, it does sometimes happen. Many, many clubs begin when, when somebody really wants to get started and realize they need friends to hit. And so they start a club and... That's, so it's yeah. not actually that unusual for, yes, I, st- I started running a club in such and such and such and such, and that's when I started historical martial arts. It does happen. So how did you get started? Um, in 2015, I saw a poster in my post office just on the community bulletin board, and someone mm-hmm. was asking if people were interested in historical fencing, and I had a picture of two guys with rapiers. And, uh, well, yeah, 
<laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I ended up emailing the guy, and turns out he was part of the SCA, had just moved into the area, was getting a group started. So I took some rapier lessons and got started there. Um, mm -hmm. After a little while, I wasn't getting the instruction I really wanted because in the okay. SCA, it's very region dependent on what kind of instruction you get. Some regions sure. have great instructors. Some regions have no instructors. And I wasn't really enjoying just poking each other with metal sticks without really okay. feeling I knew what I was doing. Um, but one of them there kept talking about Salviolo that he had been reading. Oh, right. I love so it. So I went looking and actually I came across uh, Capafero and the Duelist Companion. Okay. Yeah. That was, that was kind of my intro. Really? Yeah. Okay. So, so you started working off my book. Yeah. And then, um, okay. started learning about I, should, I shouldn't be surprised. I mean, that's exactly what I wrote the damn thing for. No, exactly. <laughs> so, but it's, it's really nice to hear that, that, that it's actually been useful to people. So, okay. Uh, are you still working with it, or have you uh, no? On? Actually, um, the main weapons I work with are um, Fury's longsword and um, uh, Scottish basketball broadsword. Okay, we'll get back to those. Yeah, tell me more about about how Saviolo entered the picture. I was just one of the uh, one of the other fencers had been reading it and kept on talking about Saviolo like he was the greatest the greatest thing ever, and uh, so I started reading about other other fencing treatises. Okay, so he was like a gateway drug into, oh, there's more than one way of doing this. Yeah, I never, I've never uh, actually read Saviolo. Um, okay. I moved quickly into Capoferro. Honestly, it's a lot easier to get a working fencing system out of Capoferro than it is out of Saviolo. I tried with Saviolo for some years in the late 90s and it was like, yeah, but actually really, because it, it feels like you're supposed to parry a cut to your head just by batting it away with your left hand. And it's like, I think we're missing something here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I did come across that very quick. I went uh, with the path of least resistance with most weapons, really. Um, so Capofero and then uh, the Cataran Society was my intro to Broadsword. Oh, okay. Um, so actually, Cataran Society. Um, ah, remind me the name of the chap who runs it. Uh, right now it's Matthew Park. He's the third president. No, who was the first one? Um, Heiko Grosso was the second. The first is something Thomas. Scott. Maybe. I have his book on my shelf. I should know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I remember a long, long, long time, maybe 20 years ago, um, the Catherine Society chat. Do you know what? I'm going to cheat. I'm just going to do a quick search and edit as necessary because... Because this is this is this is this is nuts. Um, uh, where are we? Where are we? Where are we? We've got we, we've got to have his name. Come on! <laughs> I literally have his book right here. Um, Christopher Scott Thompson. There we go. Christopher Scott Thompson. That's yes. it. Yes. 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 Because um, a student of mine um, was. Uh, in Canada or States or somewhere and was training with um, Christopher and I'd interacted with him already because he'd sent me a draft of one of his books to have a look at mm -hmm. and I actually have a book of his in its sort of um, printed out photocopies and comb bound stage oh. 
Um, but, but yeah, we, we sort of lost touch. Uh, you're, you're, you're inspiring me to actually get back to have another look at Saviolo and also to get back in touch with Christopher Scott Thompson because I seem to remember he was a really nice bloke. And his, uh, I think I gave him some very bad advice on his book because it was, <laughs> my, my advice was, should we say, to the best of my knowledge at the time, but looking back from the vantage point of 20 years, it's like, oh, I don't think I did him any favors there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he didn't stop. He's published a few <laughs> books now, and he has a good online presence. Um, they have an online um, uh, mentorship program for people that are training by themselves. Okay, that's good. And, um, that actually led me to more sources, so I started diving into the sources from Broadsword, and my my Broadsword class is actually based on Rowert. Rowert, ah, Rowert. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Ah, I love Rowert. Like. He's so simple and straightforward and, yeah. you know, and okay. What he says about the traverse is, it's basically to break measure for people who don't like giving the appearance of a retreat. It's like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, like I said, uh, resistance rowers was very accessible for me. Um, well, he's in English. That really helps. That really helps. Yeah. But he was also very thorough um, as compared to other broadsword sources. Yeah. Earlier ones are a bit more uh, sure. sparse into specifics. Yeah. I actually, you know, I still use the one, two, three, four, five, six kind of cutting thing mm. um, when I'm doing backsword, broadsword stuff. I mean, if yeah. if I was to teach a backsword or broadsword class these days, it would be probably ninety percent Roweth. Yeah, and like I said, I use it as the basis of uh, of my beginners class, and then mm -hmm. in our intermediate class, we started talking about other other sources, other ideas. Okay, so is your club officially part of the Catherine Society or are you No, I've never, I've never ranked up. Okay. Yep. Um, so you were sort of training in rape and stuff and, and basically hanging out with, with fellow sword people in the middle of nowhere in Canada yep. before the pandemic. What happened when when you when everything closed? Well I was I'd kind of taken a break um, from training with other people by mm -hmm. twenty 19 i think okay um but when the pandemic happened and i was at home a lot uh, especially with the first lockdown with my kids i picked swords back up and started training by myself okay training what training how oh actually i followed your solo training course i bought that as soon as you released it <laughs> 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 trying to give myself a bit of routine okay and uh, be completely honest, and if you say something mean about my course, I will just edit it out. So you can be completely <laughs> frank. Um, how did you find it? It helped me get on track. Um, it reminded me things that I'd learned years ago in in like university fitness classes. Um, things about like working on fundamentals and getting getting the basics down before you uh, try and do something advanced. As simple as my hamstrings are always tight. Well, I need to work right. on that. Yeah. Um, because it doesn't matter how much I want to do, um, you know, some of the more advanced moves. If my hamstrings are too tight, I'm just fighting against myself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, I'm, I'm glad it was helpful. Um, and so then you started your Annapolis Valley Historical Fencing Club. Yeah. Uh, beginning of 2021. Well, I, I, okay. I started in the fall, but we actually started classes in 2021. Okay. What did you actually do to set up a club? Um, I didn't want to be the instructor at first, actually. Uh, I had found someone who was good at teaching rapier, and we were lining that up. We were collecting weapons, uh, and I had a few extra masks 
to provide people and we found a location. It turns out the location, the only day the location was available is the one day the instructor couldn't teach. Ah. <laughs> um, and I had to decide whether I want the club now or I was going to wait six, 12 months and try and find a better location. But locations were difficult at the time because most community centers weren't renting out to anything because of COVID. Right. Uh, one of the few people I found that would rent out was fire halls. Fire halls? What are those? Oh, so um, most places in Nova Scotia have volunteer fire departments right? instead of um, full-time fire departments. Yep. And they always have like their own community hall that they rent out to things. Really? Yeah. Uh, very okay, so it's, so it's sort of like the equivalent of in England, like all churches tend to have church halls they'll rent out for various purposes. Yeah, exactly. We have church yeah. halls, we have community halls, and then we have fire halls. Fire halls, okay. Yeah. We don't we don't have those in the UK as far as I'm aware. Okay. Um, but yeah, they're, they're very community-oriented. They're just, mm -hmm. they want people to go use their space. Okay, so you chose the space over the instructor. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Now I, I am I I am I would do the same thing because ultimately you need to get up and get moving and in Canada, particularly in the winter, you need to do that indoors or you're gonna die. Exactly. And that was that was really it. It came down to do I wanna do this now or am I gonna wait until COVID allows other things open and I can find different days. And I just kinda like I said, I didn't initially want to be the instructor. I was gonna yeah. run the club and he was gonna teach, but I was like, Well, I guess I'm teaching broadsword. That's what I'm most comfortable with. So that's okay. what we're going to start with. And I, I can do this. I have experience teaching throughout my career in the military and it transfers over nicely. Okay. Um, Tell us about that. Because that, okay. So what did you do in the military that involved teaching? Uh, I was a, an officer in the Air Force. I was a tactical navigator on the Aurora aircraft. It's a long range patrol aircraft, kind of like um, the Nimrods or the Poseidon. You were a tactical navigator? Yeah. Oh fuck. Okay. I am. I'm. I'm learning to fly planes at the moment, and I must say, navigating is the hardest thing to do in aviation by a million miles. Like flying the plane is the fun bit and the easy bit most of the time, but navigating when you you have no idea. Well, okay, without GPS anyway. Yeah. It's like it is super hard. Yeah. See, I came up in the era where we still practice without GPS, um, just well, using written navigation with a map, uh, but now they, they don't do that. They just go straight to GPS. Really? Um, uh, not, not with the PPL. Become, with the PPL, like, you, have to, you have to do it. You have to do it with you know, a map and you know, yeah, a watch absolutely. and time. Well, on on the Aurora, it's a 10 man crew. Um, so the pilots kind of take care of most of the navigating point to point where yeah. my job came in is when we were at a place doing a mission. So if we were hunting submarines, we got there and the pilots became bus drivers. You know, they don't like to say that, but um, I say I say where we go and what we do, and I have a team of sensor operators that um, work with me and provide info, and I collate it all together and drop a picture on a map or on the computer screen, and um, then there's a crew commander who's in charge, and I make recommendations, and he decides what we do with it. Okay, so I'm just curious. Who on the plane is actually fundamentally, finally in charge? Depends on what part of the mission. <laughs> really? The crew, the crew commander is in charge of the entire everything. They're, they're the okay. ones who have to get to the boss when you land. When it comes to safety, the lead pilot is in charge. Right. End of. So if the crew commander wants to do something and the lead pilot can veto for safety. Right. Yeah, it's, it's the same with, like, if, if I'm flying my little Cessna under visual flight conditions and I'm not instrument rated 
and air traffic control tells me to climb into cloud, which mm. I'm not rated to do. I can tell them unable to comply, not rated, not exactly. rated, basically request other instructions. And they can't force me to go do that because as the pilot, I am the person who is fundamentally, finally responsible for the safety of the aircraft. Exactly. There would be times during a mission, I'd want to go a certain direction and the pilots would respond, we can't do that because of traffic or land mass or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's, it's really weird to me to have like um, kind of this sort of variegated chain of command on an airplane. It is, but when everyone knows the system, it works pretty smooth. Generally, oh, sure. the, the crew commander is usually either the lead pilot anyway okay. or the tactical navigator. <laughs> okay. So yeah, that makes sense. Really, a lot of it just comes down to two, maybe three people, and but you always know who's in charge at any given point. Right. Yeah. I guess that's, that's, that's critical. Yeah. Okay, so that's the basics. The basic skill then, tactical navigation, is its own thing. Right. But you were now, you were taught to teach it. Um, I wasn't a formal instructor, but everything in the military is about mentorship and teaching the guy behind you what you mm-hmm. just learned. Right. Um, and through officer training, there's a lot on uh, teaching basic skills, um, okay. both skills or uh, intellectual skills. Um, and just had a lot of practice over the years. Um, so when it came to setting up. A lesson plan. I was I was comfortable breaking it down into intro, body, conclusion, uh, prepping some questions, and uh, teaching a physical skill piece by piece. Okay. Yeah. So, so that gave you a sort of uh, structure and a framework, which you then just applied to historical martial arts. Exactly. I mean, I was super nervous for my first couple classes. <laughs> okay, I'll let you into a little secret. Yeah. When I go and teach a class, if if it's not a group that I teach all the time and everyone there is someone who I've taught many times before, I'm always nervous before my classes. Yeah, absolutely. Like, that's a, that's I, I've been shame. doing this for a long time. Yeah, but I had a written lesson plan and yeah, I looked at my notes a lot the first couple of classes. Okay. But we got through and people started fencing. Well, that's the critical thing. You do what you need to do to get them up and moving, right? Exactly. They all knew where I was at. I was honest about it. Um, and yeah, I just kind of kind of went from there and things progressed quickly. I... Uh, the other thing I took from my time in the Air Force is uh, lessons learned. You know, what what happens? Did it work? How can we make it better? And just really working that right. cycle over again. Yeah, I, I've, I've actually this week, not as this goes out, this will go out in a few weeks' time, but mm-hmm. this week as we're talking, and today is the 27th of September, I think, yep. um, my How to Teach course comes out. And in it, there's, for example, uh, planning a beginner's course. You plan out all of your classes for the beginner's course. And then each class plan has a section for the after action review. So at the end of the first class, you review what actually happened and use that information to then modify the second class plan. And as you go through that process, your final class is going to be completely different to what you actually initially planned. But you need that kind of framework to start with so that you, you can kind of progress in a systematic and reproducible way. Yeah, absolutely. I take that even a step further. And the last five minutes of my class, all the students gather, sit in a circle. And actually, I started this with my youth classes, and I realized I should be doing this with adults too, so I added it. Um, okay. And every person goes around it goes around the circle, and every person has to say something they enjoyed or something they learned today and mm-hmm. something they're struggling with that they're going to work on for next week. That's and it true. teaches yeah. people to really self-identify their own strengths and weaknesses. Um 
I use it with the kids to build confidence. But honestly, the adults need to think critically about themselves as well. Right. Uh, and again, that was something that we did on the aircraft every mission. At the end, we all sat around and we talked. And then the last person to talk was uh, the person in charge. So I'll finish off with... Okay, hang on. Let me just highlight that. The last person to talk was the person in charge. Yes. That's really important. It that went, is not, went bottom that is not. That is not a minor detail. It has to go lowest rank to highest. Otherwise, everyone is just going to copy what the higher ranked person just said. Absolutely. And uh, there are times where people like kind of don't really contribute much and they, they might be called out. Like, no, come on. What do you actually think? And it was also considered a safe space to... Let one of your peers or perhaps even, well, no, maybe not supervisor, um, your peers. Because on the airplane, they try and uh, leave rank out of it. It's based on your, your rank is based on your position. Yeah. Um, so you have to let people know, like, this really didn't work when you asked me for this. Or I didn't get the information I needed in time to make this decision. Right. We, we need to find a way to speed up this process. Or, yeah. Or you yeah, screwed, cause, up, cause- screwed up a procedure and that affected the rest of us. So, Unfuck yourself. <laughs> That's a good military expression. Yeah, because in uh, civil aviation, there have been plane crashes caused by the um, like the pilot, the pilot in command, not understanding something that the co-pilot or navigator or somebody has said. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, there's some fascinating research on it. Like like these days, even inside the cockpit, most um, countries, most uh, national airlines, they speak English in the cockpit because English has a low has a low hierarchy. Whereas mm-hmm. if you have a language like Korean, where there's a very strong inbuilt hierarchy in the language, it makes it more difficult for a junior officer to tell the person in command, actually, no, you have to stop what you're doing and pay attention to this thing. Otherwise, we're all going to die. Right, <laughs> right. Absolutely. Um, it's also like uh, English being the the language of aviation radio instead of. Uh, oh sure. The first was German, actually. Was it really? Um, I didn't yeah, know. Uh, yeah. I believe in the thirties, and it just didn't work because a lot of things sound the same. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. So, um, so they switched to English. I can't imagine having to learn German to be able to fly a plane. That would be. <laughs> I don't think it was so much an international standard. I just think there was a lot of German-speaking pilots. Right. Okay. Yeah, um, or maybe okay, so, we won the war and we changed everything afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that could be a thing. Um, all right, so you're doing this like after action review. Everyone is sitting around saying yeah. one thing that they they enjoyed about the class, one thing they're going to work on for next time. I do something similar, but I particularly in my advanced classes, but actually also in my general classes, I I do it at the beginning as well. Is I ask each student to articulate what they are do- going to be concentrating on today. Okay. Right? Interesting. Um, because that way, they know what they should be paying attention to during the class. So let's say we have a student who is having difficulty with changes of direction in their footwork, right? Having moved backwards a step, they find it difficult to move to the side or move forward or whatever. Just, just an example. Then right. whatever else we are doing in the class... Any drill that has any footwork in it, as almost all drills do, the thing that they are trying to get right in that drill is that aspect of the footwork, mm. right? Yeah. So ra- rather than it, rather than okay, the purpose is to learn the drill is we're going to use this drill as a place for you to practice this specific thing that you personally have have decided that you are working on. Um, and in more advanced classes, people will be working on entirely separate things, um, and 
hearing what everyone else is working on allows you to pair off with someone with a compatible problem. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, I haven't quite gotten that far with my students. That that's been yeah. Your school's not old enough yet. <laughs> no, it's not. No, the longest longest I've had people is uh, well, getting up to two years. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So, but it sounds it sounds like you're you're very interested in the teaching side of things. Yeah, absolutely. I did want to be a teacher, like an instructor for this at some point. I just didn't expect myself to be the first one. Uh, <laughs> so you thought now, you have a, a, a bit a bit of time like training and stuff first before you had to dive in and start teaching exactly exactly but trial by fire here we are um and now i'm at a point where i'm looking at my senior students and telling them i don't want to be the only instructor for much longer right well here's a thought right mm. one thing i did fairly early on is students who wanted to teach um i gave them opportunities to teach long before they were technically ready to do so Right. But then rather than giving them just a whole class, I would give them a piece of a class. And so they tell me they want to learn to teach. We, we build up to it step by step. And so that way, relatively soon after starting my school, I was lucky because I had at least a couple of students with seriously deep martial arts backgrounds. So mm. when I needed to go somewhere, I had experienced martial arts instructors to leave my school to while I was away. Right. Oh, no. Which is not, which is not the same thing. <laughs> at all as leaving you know someone who's been training for six months in charge um yeah that's the thing i don't i still have to be there for insurance purposes of course uh, not at a point where i can let people just train without me yeah yeah but, but um but it's not sound like a fanboy but i read all that in your book and uh, <laughs> okay. i started doing the same thing um basically my intermediate sword class overlaps mm -hmm. my beginner sword class so after the intermediate has been training for a while the beginners show up and I would pick a different intermediate every day to go lead their warm up. Right. Um, and I didn't really give them a choice. Uh, it was expected that if you're, you're coming, you're coming to class for three, six, 12 months, mm -hmm. you know how I run a warm up. go for it. So they would lead yeah. the warm up with the beginners while I continued working with the intermediates. And then the intermediates would have some drills and some sparring time while I went and taught the beginners. Right. Yeah. So they were so, warmed up and got there. Yeah. I, if you have like a, if you make it really clear that, the intention is that there will be other, you know, other students will become able to teach classes. Then those that are interested, it's actually quite straightforward to get them ready to run a basic class. Yeah. Right. Because really all they have to do is make sure nobody dies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. As long as they can run a safe environment, how much they actually teach isn't really relevant, I don't think. And that's doubly true with, with youth, HEMA. Or, or kids' classes. Okay, them we'll, I have this is on my list of questions. Like, what is the difference between running kids' classes and running them for adults? So you have anticipated me? Go. Oh, we're jumping there? Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, open the door. Um, I, I have to be more conscious of safety because the kids are going to be less conscious of it. Okay. And uh, by youth, I mean uh, I teach um, anyone under 16, I consider youth. Uh, I do have a minimum age, but that's kind of ch shifted this se September. So, what I'm is the minimum age? What's that? What is the minimum age? The uh, it was eight. Now it's six, and okay. uh, I did have it divided eight years old to fifteen years old. It was just a youth class, which I teach a simplified version of what I teach the adults, mm -hmm. um, and I focus more on sparring to keep them interested. Um, okay. But I found the youngest age group like the eight to 10 year olds weren't really sticking around. And I think it was a mismatch of like expectations. So yeah, now and there's a big difference between a 10 year old and a 15 year old. Exactly. So now at 
10-year-old and 15-year-old are still in the same class, but from six to age nine, they're in a different class, a kid's class, which, again, is, well, that one's actually more games and story-based um, with activities that will develop sword skills as opposed to stand here, this is a outside yeah. yard, this is a cut one. Yeah. Okay. So. So, uh, what was the question? Uh, no, no. Um, well, let's let's just dive into the whole how to teach children thing. Right. I have kids and I have, you know, friends who have kids and I have spent an awful lot of time sword fighting with children because what is more fun than sword fighting with children? I mean, really? Yeah. Right? I, but well. I've never it's run, I've here. never actually run kids classes myself because living in Finland, my finish was never good enough to do it in Finnish. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So some of my students ran kids classes sometimes and I have you know, other students in, in other parts of the world who run kids classes regularly, but I personally have never run formal kids classes. So how do you set them up? What's the, how do you approach it? Um, my first thing going into it was the idea that kids have shorter attention spans and yeah. I, I want to address that right away and work with that. And also um, even going into that, I've had this idea of expectation management, trying to tell people ahead of time what is to expect, but also knowing what they expect coming to a sword class so you know, make sure they're hitting each other by the end of the first sword class. Right. Right. Because that's, that's what they're there to do. They're there to swing a sword and hit each other. Um, I use the, uh, the foam training weapons from uh, Spes. Okay. Go Now, PL, I think it's called. Um, and they have various sizes. They're actually sized for adults, but they're medium weight ones uh, I use for the kids. For the 10 to 15-year-olds, I think I'm going to get slightly lighter weapons for the uh, six-year-olds. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, pool noodles are a, are a standard favorite amongst. It's true, but I, I wanted to buy something from a manufacturer because I'm asking their parents for a lot of money. Ah. Okay. And there's something to be said for how things look. Absolutely. Uh, I, I learned that very quickly in my photography career. Um, if I showed up with a bigger camera, people just respected me more, even though it didn't matter. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> really? Yeah, I showed up at a concert once just to take some photos for myself, and I had my big professional camera on a shoulder strap like across my body, and uh, the promoter for the show saw me and gave me a backstage pass, and he's like, you look like you know what you're doing. I'm like, well, I, yes, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, so um, I went backstage and shot some photos on stage, backstage. I went wherever I wanted during the show. It was amazing. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so having the right, having, like, proper – clearly made for the purpose equipment sends the right sort of message to the yes. parents of these children who are the ones actually paying for it. Exactly. Okay. How much do you charge oh, for kids classes? Uh, right now I charge uh, up front. I charge them for three months and it is 240, I believe Canadian for three months. Um, That's actually not that bad. No, but also compared to what other people charge for other activities, it's uh, it's on the higher end above average. Yeah. Okay. But the difference is, one thing I realized also talking to parents is I need to lower the barrier entry to this. So by having a higher price, parents were okay with that when I provided the equipment. So for right. beginners, I provide yeah. masks to use and I provide weapons. So for the kids' classes, I provide all the weapons. Okay. Um, so so they're hit with relatively high monthly expenses, but not a great big upfront expense. Exactly. And right. that seems to be a lot easier for them. Sure. So 
Um, also, speaking as a parent whose children have taken up and dropped many hobbies, dropping a lot of money on equipment at the beginning is always it's always a mistake because, because yeah, there's a very I, good I chance that the kid's not going to stick with it. And so you'd much rather borrow or rent the equipment and not have to worry about, you know, investing so much all up front. And then when they've stuck with it for a while and you go, actually, yes, they're really keen, then you buy them their own gear. And that was very much in my mind from my own experiences as well when I when I set this up. So now um, after, after the first three months, after they finish the beginner class, if they're still interested, they have to buy their own mask. Okay. Yeah. They have to start investing. Um, when, uh, depending on what weapon we use, I switch weapons every three months. Um, they may not have to go buy um, a pair of gloves, like hockey gloves. Okay. Um, which for kids are a lot cheaper than a pair of Red Dragons or better. Yeah, sure. So, and also with foam swords, you don't really need much in the way of hand protection. Uh, when I do longsword, I teach with lightsabers. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you teach them with lightsabers. That is genius. But no cross guards, right? No, exactly. So they're, uh, it's mostly just kind of the, the Joker Largo stuff, like definitely a blade on blade action. There's no cross guards. When it's the kids fencing, I uh, tell them to ignore hand hits because we're not okay. here to snipe hands. I'm trying to teach them how to swing a sword. Yeah. Uh, they can worry about that when they join the adult classes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what do you want the kids to have as they graduate from the kids' classes and come to the adults' classes? Uh, sorry, the last point on gear is everyone provides oh. their own cup because I'm not renting that. Uh, fair, yes. <laughs> and everyone wears them regardless of who they are. Everyone wears it. It's just simpler that way. And, um, sure. and there's no question. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so Makes sense. what do I want them to have when they come from youth to adult? Actually, I have three students moving up this month, which is actually really exciting. Sure. Um, they've done a year of youth class, and now they're going to be joining the adult intermediates, not the adult beginners. Okay, so they've learned enough in the kids' classes that they can jump straight into the intermediate class. Exactly, um, because the adult beginner class would just be a repetition of stuff they've already learned because it is an introduction to rowers. So my first right. youth, my, my adult beginners learn with a broadsword and they learn rowers for three months because I want okay. them to learn one-handed. I just found that easier. The kids, I have these curved foam sabers from Spes mm -hmm. and I'm still teaching them rowers. <laughs> of course. Yeah, so they, they understand how to stand, and they understand cuts one through, well, we use seven cuts, despite what Roworth thinks about that. Um, <laughs> so it's Roworth adjacent, not pure Roworth. Well, it's pretty close. I mean, I think I think the cut seven is the only thing I've added in. Uh, do, you add, do you add that as a, as a vertical cut or as a rising cut? As a vertical cut. Roworth says vertical, vertical cut is probably either one or two, slightly off yes. the side. Yeah. But when we're talking about defending against it with the, uh, the St. George Guard, I find it easier to set that up by telling them it's a different cut. So oh, okay. Cut seven comes straight down, and you hear you, you know you're getting a cut seven, you defend with the St. George. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so you, have you put together your own drills for, for Roeth, or have you just... Have you I've just put together some, and I've begged Borden's use. Everyone well, honestly, Roeth provides a lot, of, a lot of drills himself. He does, yeah. Cool. It's been a long time since I've read him, but... There's also a lot of people on the internet that have developed how to teach. I mean, Roeth has uh, become more and more common. Sure. And uh, I like seeing what other people do, and you don't need to reinvent the wheel, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah. Honestly, I wish more people realized that. Cause I, I have, I'm I, honest I, about it in my class. Um, I use a lot of uh, Devin Borman's longsword drills 
um, okay. from his daily email series. So when I just need a handling drill to, to keep my students using a longsword, say if we're doing a block of uh, mm -hmm. broadsword training, I still make sure they get at least 20 minutes of longsword that day. Um, I'll just use a handling drill from, from those emails. And I'll tell them, you know, this is, this is from Devin Borman at Academy Duello. And, um, you should get them doing my far flooded pharaoh. <laughs> that is actually on the list. We're about to start a longsword block, and that's what I've been working towards. Really? Yeah. Oh my god! Good luck teaching that. <laughs> yeah, that's why it's taking so long. And it's it's funny. It's like to me, it's 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 because I developed it. I mean, I developed it with some of my senior students, um, but because it we developed it bit by bit over maybe the course of about a month, and it's okay. If I explain the drill for the listeners, it's going to sound very, very complicated and difficult. So what I'll do is I will pop a video of that drill in the show notes um, so people can see it. It's basically, it says twirly-whirly drill with a longsword, and it looks great. Um, but it has this bit where you, you, you keep moving in a single direction, but halfway through the drill, you turn so you're going backwards, and then you turn again so you're going forwards. And that's the bit that everyone seems to find difficult. Um so I'm, I'm, I'm going to be curious to hear later on when, when you've been teaching this to your students, how you manage to get them to seamlessly string it all together. Well, by Christmas, they'll either have it or they won't. <laughs> okay. Um, so that's, that's slightly off topic. We were talking about kids' classes and, and okay. So let's say you have a six-year-old. You're not going to yep. be teaching them rubber strokes. No. So the younger class is actually something, again, I'm starting this year after – realizing I was losing the younger kids last year. Um, so I um, kind of sound ridiculous, but I kind of set it up a bit like a LARP. Okay. So a live action role play where I have a story that builds every week um, so that the drills have a context, a flavor text that they're, they're excited about. It might be the same drill as last week, but we're doing it for a different reason this week because this week we got to go save this person. Right. Right. Because they're, Kids, kids love stories. I mean, we all love stories. And using that, I can then use different drills to teach them how to move. But some of it is just simple games where they happen to have a sword in their hands as, as a start. Um, it's about generating the interest. I'm not trying to create expert swordsmen of, you know, out of my nine-year-old daughter. Um, I no. want her to have fun with a sword in her hands. Yeah, there's a lot of it is... Okay, play is like pretty much our best learning environment. Yeah, like this is how kids naturally learn stuff. They play with it and see what happens. And if there's a correct feedback mechanism in place, then they will learn very quickly. Right? Exactly. And if I forward. make small corrections every week, like oh that didn't work for you, how about you try hitting him like this mm. or hitting your opponent like this? Maybe you know that will start sinking in, and then they kind of develop the technique as we go instead of me explicitly explaining technique right do you know what i these days i almost never use a, an explicit technical correction almost never mm. because if you give an, a technical correction let's say um let's say you're teaching somebody to lunge and they are not extending before they lunge right when they need right. to right so let's say they're lunging on a bent arm and then extending mm -hmm. okay classic mistake you can tell them extension, then lunge, extension, then lunge, extension, then lunge. No, stick your arm out, then lunge, right? You can tell them till the cows come home and they might get it, they might not, 
And if they do get it, it may well become a kind of fixation in their head. So what they're thinking about when they're lunging is sticking their arm out, not actually hitting the person. Okay. Yeah. So what I tend to do is create an environment where if they, let's say I'm giving an individual, that's the easiest place to do this. Um, if they extend first and then lunge, they'll hit me every time. Mm. And if they lunge on a bent arm, they won't hit me and I will definitely hit them every time, right? Very quickly and without even thinking about it, they stop lunging on a bent arm because it gets them hit every time. So they stop doing it. Nothing teaches you like a hit in the face. Right. Exactly. But this way, their objective is to hit me and not get hit. Yeah. Right. And doing it the way I want them to do it means they hit me and they don't get hit. Doing it any other way. And we don't even have to talk about what other ways they might be doing it because why advertise mistakes? People will then follow the, the advert and copy the mistake. Um, it just really quickly, it just gets rid of whatever problem you're working on because it's, it's natural. Whereas, whereas a, a verbal technical correction, it's, it's just so inefficient. Yeah. No, I'm going to have to work on that. That's <laughs> where, where I want well, okay. to be more intuitive like that. Well, here's, here's a, here's a simpler one. It's because that's, that's actually quite tricky. Um, you have to be fairly skilled to make sure that you're paying attention to the, the straightness of their arm and hitting them as necessary, right? right. That, that takes quite a high level of skill. Um, but let's say you want someone to lunge further. Um, you can get them start right up against the target and just poke it with their arm. Point. So extend their arm and hit the target, extend their arm and hit the target. Take a little step back, do the same. Take a little step back, do the same. And keep working back till they're doing a lunge. But their lunge is shorter than it needs to be. And you know because they are able to lunge longer. So there's, there's no physiological reason why they shouldn't do this. Right. You then get them to take a step back and they think it's too far away. And you just gently put your foot on their back foot and say, you can hit that. Go and hit the target. And they do it. Boom. And they go, oh. And then they do that a few times. And maybe you edge them an inch or so further back and they can still do it. And an inch or so further back and they can still do it. And then after a while, they just get like hooked on the idea that they're going to hit from further away. And the problem of the short lunge or the too short lunge is gone. Very cool. Yeah. Right. But without you ever telling them, lunge further. Right. Yeah, no, I do see that would uh, change the way they adopt into motor memory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, but okay, back to children. If let's say I decided I wanted to run a kids class, yes, what would be your top pieces of advice? Um, start with older youth. So why? Why? Because it's more similar to what you're used to teaching. Okay. You, you can teach more specific form work than you can with a six-year-old with a 15-year-old um if you get them excited about the fact that they're learning historically accurate technique because for the most part we're all a bunch of nerds um they're they're interested in that they want to know how it actually happens okay um second thing is uh stop talking so much (laughs) (laughs) that is my number one piece of advice to every instructor ever in any environment (laughs) yeah i got i got really good at um talking a lot less and getting them moving a lot quicker. Yeah. And that has absolutely helped. Um, and uh, try and understand what their expectations are coming to class, even if you have to ask them or ask their parents. Um, I try and say, this is what I'm expecting to teach them. And then I, I want to know what they're expecting. And honestly, what most people are expecting in a sword class is to hit someone else with a sword. Yeah. So by the end of the first class, they are sparring with cuts one and two. Right. Yeah. You know, just... This weekend, um, there's a 
group called Suffolk Swords that trains occasionally quite near to my house. And mm. I had a project gluing up in the workshop. And I knew if I stuck around in the workshop, I would start fiddling and I'd fuck it up. So I needed to let the glue dry. And then I just, I was, I then discovered that, oh, my friends at Suffolk Swords are having a, a class or a session around the corner. So I went around and there was, um, they had quite a few complete newbies, including uh, a chap who was there with his son and his wife and daughter were also there. But the daughter was about five and she was too little to take part in the class. Right. Didn't have insurance for it and stuff. But I asked her mum whether the little one wanted to have a go. And she was like, yes. Um, and so I borrowed a couple of plastic swords from the club. And we sort of went outside. It's not part of because they're not insured for this. So I right. had to sort of, we, this is, we're separate. I am, not, I am not an instructor in this club. I am not connected to this club in any way. I'm not even a member of it. They're just friends. <laughs> right. And yeah, got the little one swinging the sword a bit. So she got used to the weight. And then basically just, she just tried to hit me. And yeah. I, and I parried most of it and then let one through. And then we did it again. And I parried most of it and let one through. <laughs> and she was just having a really good time, just madly swinging this sword at me. And the thing is, she wasn't learning any like specific technique or anything particular. But what she was learning was swords are cool, swords are fun, and I really like hitting people with swords, right? And that that's like the first thing that they have to experience, I think. Exactly. And that's where I'm aiming with my kids' classes. Like I said, the youth are a little bit more patient to learn technique. Yeah. And uh, I do start adding more and more technique. But again, even the beginner's classes are technique light. And sure. we can make corrections as as they go along. So maybe after a couple of weeks, let's go back and review your the exact angle of your inside and outside guard. Right. Sure. I just had a thought. Yeah. Um, and this is just completely came just now. So it may be rubbish. Have you considered, like, kids come to swords because they see something on TV usually, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's Star Wars or Princess Bride or Three Musketeers or something like that, right? Yeah. Okay. What about if they pick a sword fight that they really like on TV? Oh, yeah. Right? And then just say, well, okay, we're not going to do the whole thing, but why don't we take this cool bit and have a go at recreating that? Yeah. Because what that would do, what that would do, it would give them a reason to want to copy something precisely because they care about the model. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, my, my three-month blocks uh, in the kids, in the youth classes, especially, I give them specific names. Like when we're doing the saber, I call it a pirate class. When we're doing, <laughs> when we're doing yeah. Fiore, it's a lightsaber class. Um, when we're doing broadsword and targe, or like with Buddy, use like the triangle heater shields. Yeah. And it's, um, it's nice, you know? Right. But yeah, yeah, getting a specific movie that they've seen. Because then you can teach them technique. Yes. Right? Yeah. Okay, so at this point, he's cutting like this. So let's all practice cutting like this. And then so-and-so does this parry and strike. So let's practice this parry and strike. Now let's put those together. Now it looks like the film. Yeah. Absolutely. Because then, because really what we are doing as adults doing historical martial arts is we are imagining what that movie would look like of Fiore fighting someone. Yeah. And then we're, we're taking it out of the book and we're basically trying to create what it would have looked like if someone had been there with a video camera where Fiore was doing his shit. <laughs> yeah. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. I'll huh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explore that. So I have never thought of that before. And this is ridiculous because it sounds actually to me like it might be a good idea. 
Well, and that really lines up with a lot of what I what I believe about running running a club. Um, you know, I think you should run a club as a business um, because without money, it's not going to survive. But also, this whole concept of expectation management it, it just comes from my day job now, where I'm doing uh, business consulting and strategic marketing and helping people work towards goals. Um, okay. So, like, you know, the first first taste is free, kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, okay, so you're running your club. Is it is it a business or is it a non profit? No, it's an incorporated business. Okay. I am happy to talk about what I'm doing, but for my time in the military, I like a clear chain of command. Okay. And this is my baby, and I don't trust anyone else with it yet. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I ran my my school as a business from 2001. Um, I talk about I, it with my students a lot. I talk about things. I get their input. Um, but, you know, being in charge doesn't mean I don't give a shit what they think. It just means when it comes down to it, the decision is mine. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, for me, it was my only job. So right. I had I had no other source of income. So it had to be a business because I didn't have time to go and get a proper job. Yeah. I'm kind of uh, trying to straddle the two right now. Yeah. I'm imagining that the business consulting thing pays a lot better than the sword fighting. Yeah. There's not much money in swords, but uh, it's <laughs> really as long as it keeps itself going and maybe gets a new sword every now and then. Yeah, I mean, but you make a good point that clubs need money. And in fact, it's one of my first pieces of advice for anyone who's starting a club because they're always like, but I, I don't really want to charge for it because I'm not a professional instructor. And I don't know what I'm doing so much and I'm just a beginner to it. It's like, yeah, okay, but you're not charging for a service. You're yeah. collecting dues so the club can work towards its goals and have Absolutely. a budget for things like equipment or hiring an instructor or sending someone to an event so that they can learn stuff and bring it back or or whatever else it might be. That's exactly it. I mean, I have mm. three different training sets of training weapons for kids and I have two different sets of training weapons for adults. Like I've invested a lot of money into training weapons sure. to get them started. Um, and I'm right, bringing that back every, yeah. every few months as people sign up. But then there's other things like I bought all my students the t-shirts for Christmas. Oh, Well, it's a walking advertisement. It says, ask me about swords. And then the back yeah. has my... Well, that's, that's a very good... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, exactly. Someone sees a sword and says, ask me about swords. You're going to go ask them about swords, right? Well, if you're interested in swords, certainly. Exactly. And that's the right kind of people. Those are the only people I'm interested in talking to. Right. Yeah. It's, um, it's, a, it's, right. it's one, of the, one of the advantages of having such a specific niche is yeah. it's very easy to filter out the uninterested. Yes. You hand them a sword and see what they look like. Yeah, yeah. Or just, just you have a if you're at an event or whatever, and you have a table with swords on it. Some people will walk past and not even look. Some people will look, look, walk past and look and not do anything. Others, it's like there's a magnet on the table that just pulls them in. If they stop and look, I, I let them know that they can pick it up and give it a swing. They're not going to hurt. Yeah, the weapon. They might hurt themselves, but <laughs> really, you know, once they swing that sword, I tell them, I'm not here to convince you. You're going to tell right. me if you're interested or not. I, yeah, I have never tried to persuade somebody to come to one of my classes, ever. Um, I've, I've sometimes reassured people that it's okay to come when they're not very fit or have a disability or whatever. So yeah, reassurance when necessary. But like, it's not like, oh, no, you really might enjoy it. You really should come. No, 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 not at all. Because if it's not obvious that a sword fighting class is how you want to spend your time, then it probably isn't how you want to spend your time. Yeah, and I just think there's something uh, visceral about that connection, the physical connection right. of having a sword in your hand and giving you a swing. And again, for a lot of adults, it reawakens childhood fun. Yeah. They, 
they, they, their body remembers that, even if intellectually they're not sure they want to they sign up uh, for a fitness class. And I guess the real question is, why did people ever stop? I don't know. Like, if, if they're swinging a sword around at the age of five and really enjoying it, why would they ever stop? I never did. Um, I don't know. Just, I think lack I, of I, accessibility. I, now I'm making it accessible to kids around here. And actually, some of the great feedback I've gotten from parents over the past year that I didn't really consider was um, for some of these teenagers, they're not into group sports. Actually, most of them, they're not into group sports. No. They're not out there being active with I peers. hated group sports with a fiery passion. I despise yeah. and loathe them because I was made to do them at school and I hated every minute of it. Exactly. But if they're not doing group sports, if they're not interested in hockey or everything. Hang on, hang on. Is, it, is it legal for a Canadian to not be interested in hockey? Yeah, but we don't talk about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as long as you know a couple players' names and have a favorite team, it's okay. Okay. Um, but uh, so these kids don't aren't interest, interested in group sports, but also means there's not really much available to them. So one mother commented she hasn't seen her teenager excited to get off the couch and do something active in years. Right. You know, he wants to sit and play video games. He wants to hang with friends. Honestly, this, this works for people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and up. Exactly. Also, like exactly. I've had so many students come who were incredibly unfit and really needed some like help getting physically started because they had spent the last 20 years sat in a chair playing video games or working on a computer. And you know, physiologically speaking, there's pretty much no difference between doing your job at a computer and playing a video game at a computer. I mean, oh, exactly. There's different levels of arousal, I guess, but in terms of physical activity, there's not much difference. You're still sitting down. Um, That's and- actually why I introduced more physical training in my intermediate classes because I don't need to work them to death in the beginner class. I just need to get them hooked. Yeah. Um, and they realize they need to be more fit, to be honest. Um, That's it. You start sparring, get, 30 seconds, you're huffing and puffing, you're like, shit, I need cardio. <laughs> and yeah, that's what I, that's what I hit them with. Uh, maybe we should do more exercise. Yeah, let's do that. But that's it. Like, I, I believe that everything you teach a student should be a solution to a problem they have already experienced. Right? Yeah. So, it makes it a lot easier to swallow. Because, you know, if you show up first class and be like, hey, we're doing push-ups, people will uh, – think you're joking <laughs> well, uh, well you know, i i do include like push-ups and stuff in my warm-up in the first class too but but the way i pitch it is okay you're going to need a certain level of physical strength for this now you may need to start by doing your push-ups on your knees and going down two inches and coming back up again that's fine if that's where you need to start if you have a fitness background of some kind then by all means do regular push-ups but make it clear that okay you are going to need to do this, but you don't need to start with 50 push-ups on your knuckles. You can start with this version of the push-up that's adapted for your current level. Yeah, actually, I make the whole class start at an easier level than most of them can handle um, just because I don't want them leaving class thinking, oh, my God, that that was so uncomfortable because people yeah. confuse discomfort with pain. Um, so actually, taking from Kai Sadowski's book, uh, where she said, start at the lowest level of a push-up and then work towards a proper classic push-up. Um, I started everyone on the wall. Yeah. It's good and the first stop. class, we'll do wall push-ups and then we'll lean a little further away and do more wall push-ups. But that's it. That's all I'll do with them for push-ups that class. The next class, I'll start increasing it. Maybe we'll do more wall push-ups and then maybe we'll go to knees and eventually they're in classics and then maybe we'll do uh, feet up on a, on a box. Yeah. 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 And- yeah, Kaya's book, um, 
Fear is the mind killer. Yeah. Right. Do you know what the first sentence in that book is? No, I don't remember. Okay. This is one of the best martial arts books written this century. No question. It's on my top five list of books every martial artist should read. Okay. The first sentence in this book, this book would not exist without Guy Windsor. Yes. <laughs> Kai and I are old friends and I was I was I was sat I was sat in a restaurant with him in Vancouver some many years ago. I said, Kai, why haven't you written a book yet? And then he eventually got around to actually drafting one and and then I sort of mentored him through the process and you know, we had like deadlines and stuff and discussed aspects of it and light edits and whatnot and I sort of mentored him through the process of getting his first book out and mm. and it's like i was a little bit taken aback because when i read it i was like fuck this is your first book how the hell are you gonna top this <laughs> <laughs> gotta save some for next time yeah um yeah great book fear is a mind killer everyone should buy it everyone should read it um yeah i've enjoyed and it. yeah full of good advice like start everyone at a level that everyone can do yeah, and just kind of right. instead of like having this is the standard, you can go to a lower standard if you need to. Just psychologically, it's very different starting yeah. at this is the starting point. Everyone, yeah. you can do this, then try the next one. But if you can only do this, that's okay. That's yeah. what we're here for this week. Yeah. Um, when I'm when I'm gently making a point to a large class who don't know me very well, um, we do push up, twisting, squat, jump, burpees. Mm. Which is, these, these are great. Okay. Well, what we do, I start, okay. We start on our knees and just do like a gentle little half push up and then get to our feet, stand up and then get back down, do another little gentle push up on our knees and, and stand up. And that's where you start. Okay. Now, if this is comfortable, then you do a squat and then you drop into a push up position and you do a regular push up and then you sort of jump out of it and stand up and drop down. And so you're doing this. this push up and squat and then if that's comfortable the standing up becomes a little jump and if that's comfortable it becomes a jump lifting your knees up to your chest and and down into the push-up and then if that's comfortable as you jump up bringing your knees up you turn 180 degrees in the air and drop down and, and then you jump up and turn the other way and drop down and that's the full exercise okay yeah so that's what we're aiming for but this is where we start okay. and then i get them to to practice that exercise at whatever level they are comfortable with. Right? Yeah. And then I say, and of course, some of my really fit students add a clap in the push-up, <laughs> which I can't do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, which kind of gives them something ridiculous to aim for if they want to. But like everyone is starting with this super basic. It's not like this is the standard. It is this is... This, this is the exercise, and here are the various ways you can practice it depending on your current level of fitness. Right. Um, and very often, you know, like if I'm running my, my morning train alongs or whatever, um, you know, I'll have a, I'll twisted my knee the day before or, you know, done something stupid in the workshop and hurt my arm or something like that. I'm very often training on an injury. And so, like, I might, might be doing these stretches with a chair for support. Because right now it's not a good idea to not have the chair, and so I use the chair, and so on. Yeah. Right. Like you, you, you do it at the level that's right for you today, which may be better, worse, or the same as you were yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Well, <laughs> so I went off on a bit of a rant there. 
That's useful. Um, all right, so we've, we've discussed the kids' classes up to a point. Um, I do have to ask about the horseback archery because I've done it once and it was bloody good fun. Yeah. Um, I was doing it at a walk with the horse being led by Jennifer Landles. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, so how did you get into mounted archery? Um, I saw a Facebook ad. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, um, there is a horse archer in my area, about an hour from me. Um, Which in Canadian terms is next door, yeah. I'm oh, sure. yeah, an hour I'll do any day. Um, I mean, even two hours I would have gone for it. <laughs> but uh, And he, he was going to start his first training camp. And he had been training for a couple of years, I gathered, from his Facebook page. And he was bringing over the Hungarian master, Leos Kashai. Okay. And um, Kashai is the Hungarian who really brought horseback archery into modern times. There was other, there's other countries that have been doing it, but he seemed to have made a ever-growing popular sport. Right. Um, he's been doing this since the early 90s. So he came over to lead this training camp. I didn't actually participate in the training camp, but I met the, uh, the host, fascinating guy. And then I saw an ad two years later, um, doing another training camp. He was just going to be leading it. There wasn't a guest instructor. It was going to be 10 days. And this was 2020, uh, just after kind of our first lockdown had ended. We were, we had a little bit more freedom here in the summer. Mm -hmm. Um, I had recently been separated. I had my kids full time. I needed a break. <laughs> so I every, every parent can can um, sympathize with yeah. needing a break. Yeah. So I signed up for this 10-day training camp, um, and it was incredible. His his property is 200 acres on a ocean front on the Bay of Funday, which is the highest tides in the world. So the water wow. level is incredible as it comes up and down through the day. Uh, it's pasture. The horses roam freely. Um, there's woods and trails for uh, for rides after training mm -hmm. day and we camped there and I just spent the entire 10 days, barely any cell reception, uh, no electricity. I was then charging my phone in my car and we ate together. We did some cooking together and we trained together all day, every day. What did we, the training look like? We would start breakfast around eight and then in the morning when it was cooler, we might, um, we might do some riding. Um, Depending on depending on the day and the people's skill, at the beginning it was all just ground training. All all you did was firing the the bow on the ground for the first couple of days, and then try and get comfortable on a horse separately. Yeah. So um, yeah, and we did. Sorry, did you have a riding background at this point? No, <laughs> you've never ridden. Oh my god, this is your introduction to learning to ride. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, that was uh, that was interesting. Um, still a work in progress, but uh, we just we just trained. We went through drill after drill um, all day long. We stopped for food when we were hungry. Um, Usually by the end of the afternoon, it was so hot and gross. Uh, we'd go for a swim in the ocean, which was very cold. <laughs> right. Um, it was actually, actually great. You know, we want you want cold therapy after a long hard yeah. workout. Yeah, the ocean salt is great great for you. And then we train in the evening when it was cooled down. We'd get the horse out again. Um, so they, you know, kind of just relaxed during the heat mostly. And then we'd have a campfire every night and someone bust out a guitar and there was libations as he chose. And then... We did it again for the next day. It was it was like summer that camp. That sounds like a really good way to spend 10 days. It was incredible. I absolutely needed it. It did me a world of good. And at the end of it, I uh, I asked him what was next, like what uh, what continuing training is there? And he said none. What? Um, he, he had been running training camps for three summers, 
and had done a bit of winter training with some students, but had never actually kept it going. And I said, okay, look, I would do, I do business development and you need to develop this. And for about a year, we met up every Monday for a couple of hours uh, in person. We'd have coffee, we'd chat, and then we'd get down to business. And I helped him develop this idea in a couple of months to the point where he became the first professional horse archer in Canada. Okay. He was making a living teaching horse archery in winter in a, in a horse arena. So it's not, you don't have the wind, but it's cold in the middle of winter. Yeah, sure. We're talking minus 10 Celsius. Dude, I love to ride in Finland during the winter. <laughs> I, I understand those are big old buildings when you're, when you're riding in the menage. They are, it's a big building, yeah. but it ain't heated. No, so but people are wearing their winter jackets, and they might have them open depending on how much they're doing. But they're only learning ground archery all winter long. So six months after we started working together, he had eighty students showing up in the cold to fire arrows. Wow! Yeah, in the middle of nowhere in Canada. Yeah, yeah, in a rural area. Um, We just worked through some ideas, and a lot of them worked out like they're supposed to. Some of them didn't, but that's also part of the process. Sure. Um, And then. It just kind of evolved from there. And this past summer, um, he was one of the two Canadian locations, actually North American locations, for qualifications for the Korean World Horse Archery Federation competition next year. Really? So people from North America had to either go to the East Coast of Canada, to us, or the West Coast of Canada, to one of the friends, and uh, compete there to qualify. Wow. Yeah, and now he runs competitions and training camps throughout the summer. Um, he brought in another Hungarian master to teach this this spring. So, you know, he's able to bring in high-level instructors. Um, he set a new Canadian record himself. Okay. Uh, so what, what does the competition actually look like? What do you do? So it depends on what kind of style you're doing. Um, at this club, because uh, he started learning under Leo Cheshire, it's mostly this Hungarian style where... You're on the horse, the track is 99 meters long, and in the middle of the track, there's a, a target that rotates. And of course, someone's rotating that target for you, so it's always facing you as you ride, when you're, okay. whether you're looking forwards on the horse or whether you're looking backwards on the horse. Right, okay. So, so it, rota- it rotates helpfully. Yes, yes. Right, okay. It should always be pointed at you as you ride, so that any air you fire towards the target ideally will hit the target. Um, and yeah, you have to canter a horse down this 99 meter track, and... You have to do it in under 20 seconds, and you have as many errors as you want. So for a beginner, that often looks like one. Um, yeah, I, I think I can just about manage one. Honestly, I'm not even I'm not even comfortable cantering and shooting yet. I have gotten very good on the ground, and I continue taking riding lessons. Yeah. Um, I also spent a week uh, at Academy Cavallo with Jen Landles last year for right. her, um, her intensive, which was incredible. I bet. Uh, yeah, Jen was one of my early guests on the show because she and I go way back. It's funny because I missed that episode when it first came out. And then I went back to it um, kind of like beginning of August last year. And she mentioned Carousella and the intensive that she ran. And I was like, I wonder when that is. Oh, shit, it's in three weeks. And I made it work. I went. Fantastic. Yeah. So, so, so hang on. So the podcast episode that you listened to is what got you to go to her event. Yeah, and probably like my last five book purchases. Uh. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I'm guessing. I'm guessing most of those were not my books, though. No, no, everyone else. No, everyone else is. Well, like, like, yeah. Um, and actually, what was really cool is when I went to Carousel to meet Jen Landles. Uh, Jess Finley was there, 
Oh um, yes. I knew she was going to be there, so I took her book and got it signed. And excellent fanboy at all. Um, yeah. Well, honestly, now, honestly, if you're going to fanboy somebody in historical martial arts, Jessica Finley is a good place to start. And now I'm bringing her here to teach us medieval wrestling this February. Fantastic. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, that's really good. Um, so, slight distraction. We were talking about the competition. <laughs> so you have you have to shoot right. as many arrows. So what is? how do you win? Is it the number of arrows you shoot? Or do you, does each arrow have a potential to score and whoever gets the highest score? There's a bullseye target so and yeah, there's yeah. different scores per ring. And you have to get at least one arrow on the board to score because also how fast your horse determines your score. Right. Um, for every second under 20 seconds, you get a point. Okay. So the joke is you need to get more points than your horse. But right. <laughs> um, for some people, yeah, if you're on a slow horse and the, the masters who are firing 15 arrows ride slow horses because they want all 20 seconds. Right. Arrows. Yeah. Um, people as beginners usually want a slow horse because they, they need time to load and shoot their one to three arrows. And then you get this kind of intermediate level where people are fast enough shooting, reasonably accurate. Fast horses do better for them because then the horse gets a bunch of points and they get a bunch of points. Right. Okay. Even if arrow on the target, you get two, two, arrow, uh, two target points, but the horse was, you know, did the run in 12 seconds. That's eight points the horse got. Yeah. That's 10 points for your run instead of two. That's really clever. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it just depends on your skill level, what, whether how you game the competition, really. Okay. So so your friend, what's, what's the, the name of this chap and this place? Oh. Uh, Lance Bishop, he runs Seawinds Horse Archery in um, Baxter's Harbor, Nova Scotia. So, the so the name, say the name of his club again. Seawinds. Seawinds. Yeah, Seawinds. Sensible because they're on the coast. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. Okay. Do you know, I, I might just have a... If you could, it might be an interesting person to have on the show. He would be fascinating. He, uh, yeah, he's good friends and um, I just love what he do. Okay. Uh, I, shall, I shall do some researching. Okay. Um, okay, so do you have any like competitive ambitions when it comes to horse archery? I don't really have competitive ambitions to begin with. <laughs> yeah, me either. <laughs> it's not really my thing. Um, I've started c- competing in tournaments, um, both as a personal challenge to conquer my own fears, but also because I realized I would be doing a disservice to my students if I didn't ever compete, because then I sure. wouldn't be able to tell them what it's like. Right. Yeah, I, I think that every martial artist should compete at least somewhat seriously in something or other at some point during their career. Like, you know, I did competitive sport fencing at sort of, you know, university level. So right. on the university team um, in the 90s. And I'd done a little bit of historical martial arts competition in the very early aughts. But it's, I've sort of, I learned what I needed to learn from the, from the tournament scene. And it doesn't hold much usefulness in for me anymore, I think. Yeah, me personally, yeah, exactly. but but I do encourage my students to go and have a go at tournaments and see how they like it because there are things you will only learn under that specific kind of pressure. Well, that was exactly what I realized. Some of my students were asking questions about tournaments, and I wasn't the guy to answer them. And I would refer them to someone two hours away who definitely is the person to talk to about tournament fencing, but they never kind of did it. You know, they no. stuck with what they knew um, to the point where some of my students now live two hours away for school and drive back every weekend for my class. Oh. Yeah, you know, that's that's a, a high compliment, you know? That is uh, a high compliment, yeah. For a student paying for gas. <laughs> yeah, particularly these days. Yeah. Um, 
So last year I traveled to Carousella and I competed for the first time and I did absolutely poorly. And I learned a few Good. things about um, holes in my own training and um, the way other people were training differently. And it was exactly what I needed. It changed the way I started teaching. So what specifically, was that tournament at Carousella run the same way as you just described the previous one? 99 meters, 20 seconds. Oh no, Carousella, I was... Uh, I didn't compete on the horseback archery, actually. Okay. I competed with swords. I did the oh, long okay. sword and I did, um, they said side sword and buckler, but they allowed me to use a basket hilt and broadsword. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's, sort of, it's not just amount of combat stuff, it's also. Oh, have yeah. you ever done swords on horseback? Well, that's what I was there for originally because Jen Landles ran a week or a four day intensive where you took a riding lesson in the morning, you took a sword lesson in the afternoon, then you did um, something on horseback that evening, either sword or uh, spear. Actually, the ground okay. person had the spear. You had the sword on the horse. So yeah, we did we did mounted combat every day for four days. Had a day off, and then there's this three day um, seminar weekends called Carousella, which had a bunch of different classes, which were incredible. And then the last day, there's a tournament, and the tournament is multifaceted from uh, grooming the horses to horseback archery to longsword, spear, and uh, side sword and buckler was, was what we had that year. Well, that's a very comprehensive set of things. It is. And there's overall winners for how many different things you compete in and how well you do. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, I, like, I like the idea of that because um, I think you know, every serious horse person knows that an awful lot of the the riding thing is done in the stables with the horse, like yeah. grooming it and checking its legs for heat. Oh, that was the other class we had during the intensive was horse care. So well, yeah. I, I had a riding lesson and then I had a class on horse care before we even touched the sword that day. Yeah. Yeah. It's essential. And if it, it's, it's one of those things where it's not obvious how, how it works, but people who spend a lot of time around horses tend to be better riders than people who just show up and ride. Yeah. The time on the ground makes you better in the saddle. Yeah. I think it even just makes you more intuitive with the horse. Like you just understand their behavior so much yeah. more when you're around it all the time. I, that's probably it. Yeah. Okay, now we we have reached the point in the in the interview where I have a couple of questions. You, as a regular listener to the show, um, you are probably expecting. Also, of course, I sent you a list of questions in advance because I do for all my guests. Um, so, what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet? Creating a mastermind for club owners to help each other. What is a mastermind in this context? A mastermind is a hosted or facilitated peer-to-peer mentoring group, uh, usually fairly small, often five to seven people. Um, the host oh, okay. or facilitator curates the groups so that they get together with people at their own level or maybe slightly different levels, but you don't want a new club owner with someone who's been running a club for 10 years. They ha- they don't have the same experiences right now. They don't... the the younger instructor doesn't have much to provide to the older instructor but if you get people at around the same level um they really start to feed off each other so it's like a sort of more curated instructive version of my coach's corner things that we did last year yeah okay okay Um, you know they they are touted by incredibly successful people for for decades um a mentor of mine is one that took her from a seven figure business and she absolutely uh that success came talking to master and she joined every year and just keeps going because she still gets so much value out of it and maybe it's just like an offhand comment every now and then that is a big win for you um 
I went to uh, some, a similar type of program locally and someone made a comment once when I was leading a brainstorming session and that made me $10,000. What was the comment? Have you considered uh, changing the way you present this to become a course and get a local a grant from the local government? That's clever. It was. <laughs> That's very clever. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny how these, these offhand comments sometimes, like, I remember one time I took a trip to an event and somebody there, we were discussing, um, and he said something that I already knew, right? Strato is the past participle, past participle of stringer, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Just, okay. I knew that, of course, right? Because, you know, Italian and whatnot. Yeah. But I knew it. But I hadn't paid attention to it and it just brought it to my attention. And then it was like, but maybe a week later, two weeks later, something like that, this whole Lara Strattel thing just exploded in my head. And it suddenly it was completely obvious, not, not why Fury divides his treatise up the way he does with the, the sword in two hands of Alabama being divided into the Lara plays and Strattel plays. Right. Not that precisely, but because of the way he divides it up, there is a way of knowing what action you should be doing at any given time based on what your opponent is doing. Right, yeah. Right? Which was like, before that, okay, you're doing a straddle play where you could do this one or that one or this one or that one or this one or that one. There are 23 of them to choose from. Go. Right? The straddle crossing has occurred. Boom. Off you go. Do any one of these things. Um, but when, after that, that, that comment, which just got everything to kind of shake up around in my head and it all kind of came clear. And incidentally, if people are interested in what exactly I'm talking about, it's in at least two of my books and um, there's a blog post about it on my blog so they can read up all the details because it's 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 long and detailed and involves lots of Italian stuff. Um, but the thing is, when it became all about the blade relationship and aspects of the blade relationship, which made it absolutely abundantly obvious at any given time why you would do one technique or another and it explained why we have techniques that look like they belong in the strato section because they're up close and personal in the lago section yeah right and it was boom my god and this was in like let's say 20 2009 maybe something like that maybe 2010 and yeah it's just yeah just that one little remark of course strato is the past parcel of the stringer which i already knew yeah and that's all you need <laughs> yeah uh, the other thing a mastermind can provide is uh, accountability to your peers, and that okay. does wonders for a lot of people. Sure. Um, the issues, I mean, some people don't want to share with strangers. Some people are very secretive about what they do. Um, I like to believe there's no new ideas on the internet, so let's talk openly, uh, especially in a, in a fairly close-knit group. You know, I can be honest about business struggles. Yeah, and actually one of the best bits of advice I ever got was give your best ideas away for free. Yeah, yeah. Because, that makes- honestly, ideas are cheap, and anyone can have them. It's the it's the execution that matters. Exactly, and I'll sit here and I'll talk I'll talk marketing with anyone about you know whether it's horseback archery or whether it's HEMA and give people ideas of how they can uh, maybe uh, do better a little financially with their clubs so that they can okay. do more. <laughs> well, the way I've set up my recruiting is uh, I run Facebook ads, which that's the most popular. Mm-hmm. source here and i'm not looking for hema people i'm looking for people that want to become hema people yep so that changes the words i use 
and I get them to sign up to a free event. Uh, I call it a try it, a try it class, a try it night. Mm-hmm. And I actually just had one last night. And so I ran these ads locally. They're not actually that expensive on Facebook. I had about a hundred people indicate they were interested on the Facebook event. Wow. And you're not going to get a haul of hundred, but I had no. 40, 46 go to my website and sign up okay. and register, give me their email address so I can contact them and give them updates. Wow. That is a hell of a lot. Yeah. hundred who clicked interested on Facebook, 46 actually went to your website and actually filled out the form and actually gave you the email address. That is a really good conversion rate. May I ask how many impressions those ads had? So what was the conversion rate from impression to, to uh, registering interest? Ballpark. Oh God, I don't, I don't even have the number offhand. But again, I'm in a very rural area. By the time I narrow my targeting, I'm only advertising to about 20,000 people. Right. Okay. Yeah. So maybe so, a thousand impressions, something like that. I could get you the stats after this conversation. <laughs> sure, I'd be interested. Yeah. Um, so uh, they, they come to this try at night. And again, I get a sword in their hand and they know right away with it, whether they got to join. Yeah. Um, I also use an email sequence leading up to it to uh, like a nurture sequence, yeah. people call it, um, where I answer a lot of frequently asked questions. I address a few things I wanted to bring up before they showed up. Uh, I added a testimonial every time so that they could see what other people had said. That's smart. Yeah, get testimonies in front of people. I, 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 ought, I ought to hire you as my business manager. Well, actually, I just listened to the conversation with uh, Mila, and I wanna, I'm going to email her too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're kind of working different angles in the same same sphere. Okay. Um, and then, so then they, they're they prepped. They come to this try at night. They play with swords for an hour. Uh, then I give them a bit of time to handle some steel, and then... Mm-hmm ask questions, and then they all just kind of filtered out. And before bed that night, I had a few signups. Okay. And when we're talking about a sign-up is two, three people sign up, both their kids, you know? Wow. Yeah. And uh, from there, I follow up with an email sequence because it's one week between the triad class and the start of my class session. And that is very deliberate. Um, yeah. You know, you want to strike while the iron's hot. And, and I would guess that you're actual class is on the same night of the week as the tryout session. Same time. Because if yeah. they're free on Tuesdays yep. and they come to the free one on Tuesday, you want the class to be on Tuesday because they might not be free on Wednesdays. Absolutely. That's exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I'll follow up this week and let them know sign up is now, limited spots. I only take 10 people per class. Um, so 10 kids, 10 youth, 10 adults for the different classes. Okay. And I'm doing that in two locations. So, I mean... I'm almost at two years, but I've gone from my first class of five people to trying to recruit 60 new people this fall on top of the people that have stuck around. Wow. That's, yeah, you, you certainly know the business side of things. Okay. So if I may, what one piece of advice would you give me as to how to make more money? Because honestly, I could use it. Planes are expensive. Planes are expensive. Your emails have gotten better, so I don't know. Uh... <laughs> Uh, just, just the consistency and like the up to the wall and that kind of thing. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been reading them for a couple of years. Um, well, you already hired someone to run your social media, so that was kind of like the other big thing. That's, that's the thing. If you don't like doing it, don't do it. But get yeah. someone to do it. Yeah, that's honestly, I've I've been doing that consistently pretty much since the beginning. Like when mm-hmm. I moved to Finland, there was no way I could handle accounting in Finnish. No, I mean, God, handling no. accounting isn't my thing anyway. Handling it in Finnish is a whole other order of difficulty. So I learned how to do my books 
yeah. and I don't like it. And now I know what I pay for. Right. Exactly. I know exactly what I'm paying someone else to do because yeah. 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 And, I, and it turns out that, you know, for what I could make teaching swords for a weekend, paid my accountant to do my accounts for the year. So yeah. I would spend an extra weekend teaching swords and I got all my accounts done effectively for free. It was great. And how long would it have taken you to do the accounts yourself? Weeks? Months? Um, well, if we if we count sort of extracting the hammer from the computer yeah, monitor, right. uh, <laughs> then yeah, I've God knows. Your God time knows. is better spent elsewhere with Absolutely. swords. Absolutely, yeah. Um, not so much, not so much for you because you you are targeting your your market. You're talking you're talking to HEMA people when you're trying to sell courses and books. Yeah. Well, I find a lot of clubs have names, coat of arms, uh, all their advertising material is also talking to HEMA people. Yeah, not people that are going to become HEMA people. Yeah. So it uses language. Language becomes a barrier to entry. Right. Now, um, incidentally, um, I intend SourceSchool.com to be sort of open in that regard so i don't want it to be for hema people only i want it to be for anyone who likes swords who thinks this might be something who kind of stumble across and go oh i that looks like something i would like to do yeah it's pretty self-explanatory um but have you spotted any any language or iconography or anything that is likely to keep people who aren't already historical martial artists out. Actually, even in my own club, I started off with the name Annapolis Valley HEMA. Um, the idea being, if you saw the word HEMA, hopefully you'd be willing to risk a Google search and find out what HEMA is. Um, but then I well, realized... it's a Danish department store, isn't it? <laughs> no idea. Um, but I realized when I was talking to venues and trying to get uh, other, other businesses to work with me, when I was describing what I was doing, no one knows, knows what HEMA is. I said I was yeah. doing historical fencing and they're all like oh and it just got them in the ballpark of what we actually yeah. do so they're like oh like lord of the rings game of thrones right. like yeah that but we use historical manuals and real sources and they're like oh okay then they have a much better idea of what we do mm-hmm. so again i don't want the club name to be what attracts team of people i'm trying to attract other people to risk trying it so i changed yeah. the name to apples valley historical fencing and there's been no questions really about what we do or when they are yeah. in question they're in the ballpark already yeah that makes sense yeah. Oh, okay. All right. So this um, mastermind, um, would you be running it as a business or as a as a just a get together with colleagues or? How well, would you first do taste it? is free, right? Sorry. First taste is free. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I'd be interested in developing the idea, um, but ideally, it would be run as a business. Uh, there's just something different when you pay for something. Yeah. Um, there's that skin in the game. And it's treated differently. And I think if you're actively trying to run your club like a business so you can do more things, um, like you, you have club money to send people away. And I should maybe point out that, that running your club in a business-like way does not necessarily mean it is an incorporated business being run for profit and you're, you're living off the proceeds. It just means exactly. that you are taking the financial side of running your club seriously. Yes, because if you don't yeah. tra- take finances seriously, you're not going to last. Um, volunteer burnout is huge. Yep. Um, you won't have money to get a venue in the middle of a Canadian winter. Yeah. yeah. You won't have money to invest in, in new weapons, um, that allow other people to come try this with a lower yeah. barrier. And that's how you get more people in the door. Yeah. Um, and the flip side of that is just because I run my business, my business is incorporated. doesn't mean I can't take people's advice. Like in a nonprofit doesn't mean I have to be secret about everything. Yeah, yeah sure. 
Yeah, yeah. it really just comes down to um, when it comes to finances. I have a budget. I have ec- you know ex- expectations um, for growth, and then I try and make that a reality. Okay. So, uh, do you think you're going to act on this? <laughs> if I find the right people, I mean, <laughs> cost is a lot of a barrier for a lot of people. I'm there's not exactly a lot of money in swords. Um, Very true. The cost doesn't need to be exorbitant, but it, it does need to reflect ideally the level of um, help yeah. from the mastermind. Mm. Um, and then it's just finding the right people to curate into the right groups. Mm. And um, so far, no one knows who I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe maybe you'll become famous in the historical martial arts world well, when this podcast goes out. <laughs> why, why listen to me? I'm just another guy. Well, famous. honestly... Um, I would be, I'll be fairly inclined to take your opinions on teaching seriously. Um, I wouldn't take your word for historical interpretation. If I had a different opinion, you would really need to convince me that you were right. That's fair. Um, but on the business side of things, you obviously know a lot more about it than I do. So yeah, no, that's, I say, I say if, if you're, I'd say people should be listening to you if they if they actually want to have a financially healthy club. So. Yeah, and some of it works, some of it doesn't, and then the rest is just testing and having yeah. that mind. Okay. So while we're on the subject of money, if somebody did give you that mythical million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide, how would you spend it? Uh, besides my sword collection? Um, You're not allowed to spend it on your sword collection. But I swear it helps people. No, we're talking about youth HEMA. I, I thought about this, and it would be fascinating to help youth HEMA grow. Um, a lot of people are hesitant, whether it's because, as instructors, they don't want to work with kids, um, or they don't want to play games. They're there for the seriousness of the sources. Yeah. Um, I don't think teenagers get enough credit in that regard. I mean, you don't have to teach the six-year-olds how to play play tag with a sword in their hand. So you don't you don't have to do that. But I've got fifteen-year-olds that I would put up against adult beginners. Honestly, I had a student who started training at the age of ten, right? Yeah. And he was just legendary from day one. And by the time he was thirteen, he was sparring with the seniors, no problem. And by the time he was like sixteen, seventeen, he was one of the best in the school. And yeah, age, the way, the way I always do it, because I never ran kids' classes, is if mm. somebody had a, an underage person who wanted to come and join the class, um, the parent would have to, or guardian or whatever, would have to watch the class, so be there in the room while the class ran. And at the end of the class, um, I would say yes or no, the kid would say yes or no, and the parent would say yes or no, right? And if three yeses, the kid could join the class, right? Yeah. And se- several cases... There would be a yes from the parent and a yes from me, but the kid was like, ah, no, it's not really what I want to do. Fine. And in some cases, it was a yes from me and a yes from the kid, but the parent was like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so in his case, you know, he's, he was, he was perfectly mentally capable of handling the class at the age of 10. And he was honestly, he was pretty physical, physically capable too, because his, his beginnings course, you know, has, Beginners classes sometimes have a sort of, for some reason, they, they, they tend to fit within a certain demographic in that particular course. Right. Yeah. Like, like this particular one had a lot of mid twenties, skinny, blonde computer programmers. <laughs> right. Okay. And, and there was this little kid. 
And we were doing this exercise up, down, around, around, where you hold the sword out and you up, down, and spin it around a couple of ways. And it's just a handling drill. And I was leading them through it. And I was just playing around a little bit. It was day one of a beginner's course. I kind of wanted to see, this is a long time ago when I was, when I was a bit more, um, a little bit more gatekeepery about it. Like, yeah. you know, I wanted people to be willing to work hard and if they're not, you know, it's not like, it's not like you had to keep going or you were out or anything like that, but it was just, I wanted to make it reasonably hard in the beginning so that they would understand that it was going to be really reasonably hard. Um, anyway, so a minute or so in, most of these 20 something, skinny blonde computer programmers are literally leaning on their swords because their shoulders are given up. And this little kid is there. Boom, boom. Same sword. Yep. You know? Steel long swords all around. Boom, boom, boom. There he was. Yeah. Great kid. Um, yeah. And actually one thing I've noticed uh, with with the teenagers, uh, and actually just the kids in general, um, it's the girls learn faster. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've noticed that when teaching shooting. Um, I, I teaching found- pistol shooting. I've I've taught Half a dozen women and a dozen or so men how to shoot straight with a pistol. Mm-hmm. And in every case, it's a very small sample, but it was, it seems pretty consistent. The blokes were hopeless because they'd seen Rambo or There's whatever. There's two reasons I, I come to believe why it's easier for these girls to learn. And the first is um, the younger they are, the less they've been socially programmed not to want to hit people. Right. And the other is they actually listen to instruction. That's it. Same with shooting. The women would just do exactly what I told them to do as best as they could. Whereas like the boys, following us. Whereas the boys, they wanted to do the thing they've seen on TV. Well, they already know how to sword fight. They've been doing it for years as kids. Yeah. The, the real key in the first few classes is when I explain to the girl, I explained to everyone, but the girls, listen, you're not trying to play with their sword. You're trying to hit them in the face. Yeah. So the boys are still like play Same sword so. fighting and the girls wait for their opportunity and smack the kid in the face. Excellent. <laughs> Uh, we ran a we ran a, a friendly tournament in house, and um, this thirteen year old skinny girl um, tied for first, and she was leading the whole way through the tournament. Then there's just no question that she's one of the best fencers, the most dedicated fencers there. Yeah, um, and honestly, also young and athletic enough that uh, sometimes she gives me and my assistant instructor a run for her money if we've been teaching all day. Excellent. Yeah, no, I'm excited to see where she goes in the next couple of years. If she sticks with it, um, she has three more years until she's an adult. Like that's well, until she's in the adult in the adult classes. class. Yes. Yeah. So by the time she starts fencing adults, they're not going to be ready for her. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So how exactly would you spend the money? We know okay, what you spend so- it on, but how would how would you actually deploy the cash? Um, creating age appropriate lesson plans. Uh, with okay. professionals that are ready for this kind of thing, or even just allowing, giving a new other clubs uh, some mentorship in that, or like how they can turn their current curriculum into um, something more age appropriate. Um, and I value people's time. And I think whoever's helping with that should get compensation for that. Um, the second thing is subsidized setup gear. Um, right. A club could apply say we're starting this youth program we're already developing our lesson plans we can prove that we're already working towards this and actually probably already working with the organization towards this um we would like help buying gear and i don't see it as a grant for here's 10 swords here's 10 masks go for it i think it should be subsidized because i, I really have this belief in skin in the game where if yeah. they front even if they front a hundred dollars and you, you, you give them a grant for 
$1,000, they are more likely to see something through than if you just give them it. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, um, and make, so make this accessible. I mean, it, it's hard to teach when you don't have the swords. It's hard to teach when people can't afford a mask. Yeah. So really a full set. And that's like my beginner's class. The only thing they have to pay for is the class and their cup. Mm. Yeah. And uh, I'd also yeah, like to see, um, yeah, uh, youth tournaments. So don't start at the top. I'm thinking grassroots. Start with the smaller tournaments, the regional tournaments. Um, you know, the, the clubs that have their thing and invite the next five clubs over. Have youth tournament there as these mm. clubs start developing it. Because once they're geographically spread out, that whole region is going to start bringing people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, if I have whether, the money, I'll give it to you. Yeah. Whether that comes through sponsoring the events or providing weapons at the events or, or what, um, I do see this as a problem you could throw money at and solve. Yeah. Some, some problems are amenable to cash Yeah, and getting kids involved in historical martial arts may be one of them. And actually that's a, a problem I'm having here is because he is not recognized as a sport, um, by mm -hmm. our, um, government like the sporting body that is responsible yep. for grant and that kind of thing um my students aren't able to access some two really important grants that a lot of people in the region use um uh, the sports grants uh you can apply and say i i earn less than whatever figure a year i want my kids to play hockey this year i need eight hundred dollars for year and they mostly say yes wow and i've had parents cool. ask me if i was eligible and I'm not. And well, honestly, you, you strike me as the sort of person who's able to fix that problem. I've got an idea. <laughs> yeah, uh, about uh, basically need a um, at the very least a provincial organization. Um, yeah. For for HEMA, um, and then once we're recognized by the provincial government, then we qualify for grants. Right. But I'm the only club in my region really teaching kids. How many clubs do you need? Well, for the provincial organization. Uh, I would I'd like to get uh, at least three out of the four we have in our province. What's, what is what is stopping them from joining? Right now, they would get no benefit. They don't teach kids. Ah, so th these grants are only available for kids? Yes. Ah, right, okay. There may be other grants we could look at later on, and like it's supposed to make it easier to access better insurance policies and affordable. That might be a way to start. Exactly. Because uh, all of these clubs are paying insurance, and if... Joining yep. together in, okay, I have quite a lot of experience of the getting historical martial arts clubs to act together as a national level association type of thing. Okay. And it is, it is really difficult because the defining feature of historical martial arts is we are doing our thing, our way, on our own. Everyone else can just fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, yep. like I'm not having somebody coming in and telling me what kind of gloves I need to wear or what I need to put on the end of my sword so I can fence or what kind of swords I'm allowed to use or blah, 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 right? Because yep. people tend to associate um, kind of governing bodies as the safety police who will tell you you're not allowed to do the thing you're doing, right? Yep. And, that and is a lot of times that is a part of the role. Exactly, exactly. That is part of the problem because, because the insurance is mediated through these people so everyone has to conform to the safety guidelines that the insurers require. Yeah. Right. Or that have been agreed with the insurers. Yeah. And that does cause a huge problem, but there should be a way of doing it so that it's kind of built in that the association of clubs together um, has no say on what is 
studied what is taught, what equipment is used and whatever else. But at events run by the association, then these safety standards will apply. And of course, the, the association yeah. never runs any events, so it's not a problem. <laughs> yeah, um, that's kind of my next year idea project. Okay. Um, it is something I want to work towards. For now, if a parent comes to me and says, uh, you know, do you need, do you, do, can you qualify for this grant? Uh, and I say no. Um, I also follow up with saying, I don't want cost to be the reason your kid doesn't do this. If you can't yeah. afford it, what can you afford? Yeah. And people are honest. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do the same with like all my online classes and stuff. There's the regular price, there's half price, and there's free. Uh, yeah, I mean, choose, really, choose the one what's, what's the worst that could happen? Some parent lies a little bit, saves themselves two hundred bucks, and I teach their kids how to play the swords. Yeah, I'm out. I'm out two hundred bucks. Okay, that kid but, is still but, getting ah, everything. But you're not. But you're not out two hundred bucks because if you didn't do that, the kid wouldn't get to play with swords. Exactly. So you're out the two hundred bucks anyway. It's like it's like I don't worry about people pirating my books. You know, they're always like stupid free book websites yeah. or whatever where people could download PDFs of books by all sorts of people including some of mine and the thing is you can't stop it it's very difficult to prosecute for it but the thing is that's basically advertising if someone yes. downloads one of my free books one of my books which i haven't set for free but they have got it for free or whatever and they like it they're probably going to come to my website they're probably going to buy one or other of my other books maybe they'll get that pdf and go i really like this book i want the hardback and they'll go and, and buy the hardback sword sword kids they go to school and what did you do this weekend? Oh, I fought with swords with all my friends. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah. you know, that that's just word of mouth advertising. So, yeah, it's, it's, and honestly, the, the way the parents have been honest, they may, they may say they can pay half. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. So not only did I not lose out on $200, I made probably $100 and yeah. taught the kid and their parents give me a glowing review. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a long-term outlook, but that's yeah, the way. Yeah, I think so. There are definitely people out there who will maliciously take the piss, right? They do exist. Yeah. But the thing is, if you if you structure everything to protect yourself against these relatively rare malicious piss takers, then you you create a totally different tone with everything, right? And it puts off people who are honest but maybe don't have much cash at the moment. And it's like my feeling is my people the ones who want, who like the work I do and want to support it will do so and everyone else are irrelevant. It doesn't yeah. matter what they do. If they, I don't know, put a PDF of my book online or, something, or download it for free somewhere where they shouldn't or whatever. It's like, those people are going to do that anyway, right? Yep. They're not my people. I don't care what they do. No, uh, time spent worrying about that is time wasted. Exactly. And, yeah. um, you know, worst case, I may be out a few book sales here and there, but those free downloads may very well get people in to buy my other stuff because that's how they came across my stuff. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. Um, okay. So we're going to spend a million dollars improving historical martial arts worldwide by introducing um, sort of mentorship for people who want to run kids' classes, class plans and stuff for them to use and and Great. maybe even lessons Terrific. on pedagogy for children. Um, some people are daunted by teaching kids, but really it's not that much different from adults. Yeah. Um, so, you know, even if you just need mentorship about that to talk that through. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm reminded of that scene in the movie Kindergarten Cop where Arnold Schwarzenegger, the roughy tufty big police chap, ends up having to take a class of kindergartners 
and they just destroy him. <laughs> it's absolutely hysterical. Yeah, yeah, you got to set tone pretty quick. Yeah, but uh, I also run a pretty relaxed class. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had parents tell me like, you know, you can you can yell at them, and I'm like, uh, why would I? Why? Why? This isn't basic training. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not an old school uh, sensei. Yeah, like we're we're here to have fun, and I don't need to yell at them to get them to do what I need. Yeah, I've raised my voice three times in the past year. One was because of um, bullying. And twice with disrespect to the gear. Okay. And it was very quick. It ended. It was forgiven. And that's it. Even as simple as you there, bash the sword on the ground, put the sword down and go sit down. That's it. Yeah. You know, yeah, talk yeah. to the kid afterwards once everyone's calmer and uh, move on. Yeah. There, there is a whole topic here that probably requires <laughs> a book to carry into. Uh, yeah. Brilliant. Well, I'll add that to my list, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Andrew. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, thank you very much for, uh, well, <laughs> taking my pitch. <laughs> to be fair, I did say find someone to talk about Euthema. And if you can't find anyone, I'm a bit. Well, honestly, I liked your pitch. It worked. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Thanks. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Andrew. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four eBooks and access to several of my online courses. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Tasha Dandelion Kelly, expert in medieval clothing who blogs at Lacotte Simple and knows perhaps more than anyone else on the planet about how a gambeson should be made. Yes, we do go into what a cot simple actually is, and of course I am not pronouncing it correctly, but this is why I get experts like Tasha onto the show. Now, you definitely don't want to miss this, so subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show, and if you have an extra minute, leave a review. Most importantly, though, if you've enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends. It really does help. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. (laughs) 